Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Delivered Lumens podcast. This month's episode, I'm really, really excited to have Mariana Figuero of the Light and Health Research Center at Mount Sinai as my guest. We get into what light can do for your health. We get into analyzing the subtleties of how light and brightness, what, is, what does bright mean, what does dark mean uh, as it relates to health. We talk about circadian entrainment versus alertness and alertness stimulus, and we try and get into, um, not in a negative way, but we try to get into pop science and what you may see as pieces of advice out there on the internet that are both correct, um, some that are wrong, um, and more to the point, the subtle differences between um, what a 15-second clip might give you and a reel on Instagram and some of the real um, science behind these things. So it was a great conversation. Um, Mariana is just a joy to talk to, and I cannot, uh, I can't wait for you to listen to it. If this show is helpful for you, please um, leave a comment in your favorite podcast app. It helps the show grow. Share it with your friends. Um, and of course, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. It's how we grow this and how we get this uh, this great information out to more people. Um, as always, if you have comments on the show, you can email me, mail at deliveredlumens.lighting. And uh, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Right. Hey, Mariana. Hey, JP. How are you? I am really well. Um, we're, I think we're both recovering from education, right? So. I guess. You more than I, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for everyone watching and listening to this, we're recording it the Friday after education. So we've been inundated with products, inundated with people. So we're, we're both kind of recovering. So it's kind of nice to do something quieter and more, uh, more personal. Um, I've been involved with the Light and Health Research Center as an industry advisor for a little over a year now, and um, I'm just blown away by the work you guys do. So I, I wanted to start sort of at the, the very top, because um, it's a relatively new organization, although you have a long history. And so why don't you tell us where the LHRC grew out of and what the sort of history was that, that brought the organization forward? Okay, um, we, we obviously were formerly the Lighting Research Center, um, and the Lighting Research Center was established in 1988 uh, out of RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Mark was the director for almost 30 years. And uh, I think the LRC played a, a really important role for the lighting industry at the time that, that we started there, um, doing a lot of work with what they call legacy um, uh, products, you know, fluorescent lamps. Well, I started with incandescent, fluorescent, and, and then even the start of the LEDs. So I think we participated in the, in the entire transition, doing a lot of work with, you know, product testing, demonstration, um, a, a lot on, on, on the technology itself in addition to the human factors. Um, the other very nice I think um, activity that we were we had at RPI and and I think it's a big legacy of the Lighting Research Center is the uh, Masters of Science in Lighting program, which we have hundreds of alums. Mm -hmm. A lot of the alums that were even in education that we saw a lot of them are were all people that were trained um, at the Lighting Research Center. Um, and I came in uh, in 1996. I actually was a student and. Um, 
I became director in 2017 um, when Mark decided he just got tired of being director. He really just wanted to be involved in, more in the research. Uh, and at the time, I was growing the lighting health program there. So that's what I started and continued to do. And that program really created legs in a way. It became a very, um, a very strong program. Um, but and at the same time, lighting was changing because LEDs came in, um, all the legacy light sources uh, disappeared almost. So mm -hmm. there's a lot less research to be done. Um, the industry was really changing in the sense that we didn't have the big three anymore. We really started having very small manufacturers and so on. As you can see, you have a lot more smaller companies that are now using LEDs. Um, so the handwriting was on the wall. We weren't going to get a lot of the support from the industry. Uh, the, 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 the health programs were growing, and we weren't in a medical school. Mm -hmm. So the need to be associated with a medical school became obvious. So okay. it was almost like a lifeline for us in the sense that it was really the next step where, where we were headed. And mm -hmm. that opportunity at Mount Sinai appeared, um, and they were very good in that they agreed to move the entire center and they also agreed to rent a space upstate for us so that people didn't have to relocate to New York City. Wow. So it's one of those things that you just can't say no to it. Right, right. Sure. <laughs> so uh, it turned out to be a really, really good uh, transition for us. So yeah, I mean, certainly from a resource standpoint, it sounds like it's been um, pretty fantastic. Um, talk a little bit about that transition to health and what, um, on a sort of subtopic level, you know, I think people hear the, the one that, you know, I think you are one of the pioneers in, and I think has largely been taken over by pop science. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little later, but, um, uh, is the circadian conversation, right? Mm -hmm. It's, that's the, the one that I think is everywhere in the media these days. Um, can you talk a little bit about the origins of that science and what got you, you, uh, tied into that topic and how we moved forward on it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, the studying circadian rhythms has been for many, many years, right? Mm. I mean, there, there were studies, uh, boy, I want to say in the 50s, I guess, that people were, you know, in, uh, being put in dark caves for many days, and people were studying what is happening to the biological rhythms um, in dark caves and so on. I think where lighting really got into sort of, became almost like a tool to study circadian rhythms was in um, 1980 when um, Al Louie, he, he's a researcher, he was at Oregon Health, and he discovered that light suppressed melatonin. Because melatonin is a hormone we produce at night in darkness. It's almost like a marker of the biological clock. So the fact that, that he discovered that light could sort of modulate melatonin production, um, he, he kind of allowed us to start using light as sort of a tool to study um, circadian rhythms. Mm. Um, so that's sort of w when it started. I mean, in my case, I came in more interested. You know, I have an architecture background, so I'm an architect by training. And when I got to the Lighting Research Center as a student, I thought I was going to be doing design. And then I sort of fell in love with research. and But I've always had more of the applied research, so I'm not as interested in the, in the bench 
side research where, you know, even though we are doing animal studies and we are doing a little bit of the basic research, but I'm really interested in how do you apply that? How do you take the knowledge from the science and bring, bring it to the application and help people with it? Sure. And that's really where I started working at the LRC and it was a sort of a perfect um, scenario to, to develop that. So to, to start understanding how is it that you can use light to help people. Mm. Now, one thing that I, I, I do, you know, I think it's interesting and I think that, that we tend to just lump everything into circadian and it really isn't. Right, right. Right. It's, uh, it's circadian is just a shortcut for all the non-visual effects of light or even, I mean, even non-visual effects is a little bit of an oxymoron because the same photoreceptors that participate in vision participate in and the non-visual effects. So in a way, everything is visual, but you know, you have more of the physiological, um, you know, and biological impact of light. Um, right, right. And I want to talk about this a little bit as we go forward, but, uh, but I want to kind of set the table first a little bit. Um, do you think that, or let's, let's, before we get into the circadian stuff, outside of what people are calling circadian health or circadian rhythms, what are some of the other onset effects of lighting or, or either beneficial or negative effects of lighting that you at the center have studied? Well, I mean, you know, in, in a very broad terms. Um, so lighting, as, as we put it, lighting can affect your visual system, your non-visual system, and your perceptual slash psychological system. Okay? Mm. And even within those three broad categories, you have subcategories. So with the visual system, for example, you think about it, you can manipulate light to improve um, your ability to see a task as well as change brightness perception in the room, your ability to see colors, for example. All of that is manipulating lighting to impact the visual system for certain tasks. Hmm. And then you have the non-visual effects, which you have not just the circadian rhythms, which, which is entrainment of a biological clock, to the local time on earth, but it's also the alerting effects of light and how light can directly impact your ability to stay awake, for example. Mm -hmm. And then you have the psychological perceptual system, which part of what we're working with is with the falls. So we're using horizontal vertical cues to allow your perceptual system to be able to understand the built environment better and reduce a risk for falls or increase postural control and stability. And then you have sort of the, the on the perceptual side, side too, which I think the designers ex exploit that very well, is that really lighting creates emotions, right? Depending right. on how you light the space, you you really make people, right, get into the space and wow, it's, it's, it's the architecture, but it's also how light sort of emphasizes the architecture. Okay, sure. so we try, to, we try to work in all these areas. And then you have, sort of the UV with the disinfection, which we're also working on that. Mm -hmm. So we sort of work on this human factors side, affecting visual, non-visual, and perceptual. And then we work a little bit on the technology to try to uh, develop technologies to be able to implement you know, lighting solutions in the field that will help those three broad categories. Got it, got it. So I think for the folks out there that may be um, see some of the folks in social media or on the mainstream media talking about circadian health or start talking about sleeping better. I think it, it 
I shouldn't say rarely, but I don't think the word circadian gets used even that much. I think it's more like if you want to sleep better, this That's is right. the stuff you should do. That's right. And that can be, um, it's, first of all, misnomer, but also uh, it's more complicated than any one particular factor. And we're going to get into that in a second. So I think right at the top, you touched on this just now, but let's let's really you know focus on it a little bit. The difference between entrainment and alertness. Um, I think when you, you know, if I'm just scrolling around Instagram or if I'm watching the news or something, I I'll see something that says, don't look at a screen after 11 p.m. Or I'll see, make sure you see the sun, you know, from whatever, before 10 a.m. or something. Um, and I think we're talking about two different things there. And I don't think people necessarily understand that. So can you give us a little bit of a primer on the two different concepts? Yeah, I, I think circadian entrainment, it's, it's a very simple concept. It's like we have a biological clock, we humans have a biological clock that in a dark cave without any, any external cue will run with a period slightly longer than 24 hours, on average about 24.2 hours. So what entrainment is, is that resetting of your biological clock daily so that it runs with 24 rather than 24.2 hours. Mm. For that, you really need morning light in general, right? There's a small portion of the population that may even need evening light because they have a biological clock slightly uh, shorter than 24 hours. But I'm getting more of the average, the norm population. They, <clears throat> they are, the normal population will need uh, that morning light. And I got to tell you, if you go for a half an hour walk, you're pretty much done, okay? okay? You maintain that entrainment. So what that entrainment is, it's regularity. Every day, getting that light at the same time. Now, it is also avoiding evening light because that evening light may sort of undo what you get in terms of the morning light. So, mm. so what, what entrainment is, is getting a regular light dark, and getting a regular light dark at the same time every day, okay? And you're pretty much entrained. Now, you may be a perfectly entrained person, but if, if you get that morning light and then you go work on a very dark room, you're going to get sleepy towards the day because mm. there's lighting has this very strong alerting effect. I always say it, it's like a cup of coffee, okay? So, okay? so light can be used a cup of... And any time of day and night that you get that light you're going to be alert. You're going to have this, you know, alerting effect. Now, what's interesting is that the lighting affecting your entrainment can be different than the lighting affecting alertness, for example. We're showing that red light, which does not affect entrainment, affects alertness, for example. Mm. Right? So ideally, you want bright days all day because that will promote entrainment as well as give you the alerting effect that you need during the day and then you want dim nights and you want to minimize blue light in the evening and you want to do that every day that's sort so, of the ideal scenario that's really okay so there's a couple of things in there that i want to just sort of touch on there so when it comes to entrainment itself it's about scheduling it's about that dark, bright days dark nights concept when it comes to the alerting effects that's something that you can sort of either intentionally or not, but it can be sprinkled in throughout the day. So if you're feeling, is it safe to say something like if you're getting that three o'clock lull? 
Yeah. If you go outside and get a little sunshine, you might feel a little better. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I think this is what I'm what I think people miss a little bit about this conversation is um, the hyper regularity of this conversation. This idea that like this is the only right way is very um, well. It's great for social media, right? Because it's a quick clip and it makes sense and people can get it in fifteen yeah. seconds. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. No, yes, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, that's correct. But in reality, there's all kinds of applications here, right? So if we're talking about um, the uh, that, that office worker who, or uh, you know, I've got a friend who's a police officer and he's got to work night shifts, yeah. and that's a whole other set of of circumstances. Um, let's talk a little bit about that red light comment you made, though the the idea that it it's affecting alertness if it's not infecting entrainment. So I think that's really interesting because there's a very um, popular trend going on right now, people talking about how they're sitting in red light. Uh, to regulate their systems or something. What, do we have any science behind that, or is that just one study that people are beating up too much? Um, you mean for regulating the system? I uh, guess. I don't know. I've just seen a lot of different clips about this. I'm not, yeah, I, I mean, um, it depends on what system you're talking about. What right. we're seeing, it's very interesting. We're seeing that red light seems to be affecting your flight and fight system. So it's okay. almost like the the reason why it's giving you that alerting effect is just, it could be, and again, I, I don't study the psychology part, but what I think it's happening is people associate the red with like danger, mm. with fire, with things like So you're almost like you're activating your flight and fight system so you're alert. Mm. Think of it in the middle of the night when you're asleep, somebody breaks into your house, your melatonin levels are high, you're sleepy, your circadian system is telling you to stay asleep, but your flight and fight system will get you out of bed. Right. Right? Right. And that's what the red light is sort of doing it. It's giving okay. you that very kind of like, you know, man, I got to react here. There's something going on. Mm. Right? Mm. So, but it's not affecting my melatonin level. It's not affecting my biological clock. It's a, it's a separate system that it's- got it activating it and we're seeing that we're doing actually uh, fmris which is you know scans of the brain and we're seeing that there's blood flow in the brain that it's similar to blood flow when you use blue light which everybody knows that it's also alerting and it affects the circadian system um, so i think the other thing that really it's important to remember is there's a lot of hype too about blue, blue enriched and blue mm, light and so on. Right. It, it doesn't have to be blue enriched. And, and I think the designers probably are having a sigh of relief with that because yeah. you, you don't have to have a, a 6500K light source to be able to be a circadian entrainment or alerting light. You can do that with a 3000K. You just have to increase a little bit the light levels um, or you can do task lights or things, you know, layers of light and so on. So there are ways to do it that it's very nice and very, very um, comfortable without looking institutionalized or mm. kind of creepy, as, as some <laughs> would say. <laughs> so for the folks out that might be listening to this or, or uh, watching along, if you're not a lighting person, um, what we're trying to drive at here is that um, if you want that warmer incandescent tone of light in your home or in your office or wherever you're controlling the lighting circumstances, um, that is just as potentially circadian, um, 
effective as and alerting and alerting yeah as um any blue light source that if people are telling you you need this awake lamp or something that you can buy on amazon it's not necessary you can put any old lamp on if as long as it's bright enough that's exactly right so maria can we talk a little bit about um this idea of brightness so um how bright is bright when we say bright days dark nights um I think people get this in idea that, you know, bright is the only thing that's bright is the sun <laughs> and the uh, the only thing that's dim is total darkness. Is there a do we have a sense or a guideline that we can give people on this? Yeah, well, first of all, let me start by saying that it is true that daylight is your best light source mm. for the circadian system, for alerting effects, for even your ability to see. I mean, if you need to wear glasses, reading glasses indoors, you go outside, you can probably read your book outside because there's so much light. Um, so um, no question about it. But we can't always have that amount of light that we have outdoors indoors. And we unfortunately spend over 90% of our time indoors. Um, so yes, you you can have electric lighting that will give you that circadian entrainment, that alerting effect, that ability to read well. Um, you know, for the eye, a photon is a photon. It doesn't matter where, whether it comes from an electric mm. light source or a natural daylight. It, it just, it's a photon and that's what the eye absorbs. Got it. Um, Got it. it. It's just not the most efficient way of getting it, but sometimes that's all we have. So got we got to try to do it as efficiently as we can. Okay. So is it fair to say if your goal is to feel sort of healthy, awake, and alert during the day, um, the as bright as you enjoy it being, is, the, is that a good guideline? Um, okay. You know what I always t tell people? Sit by a window. Mm -hmm. You know, sit facing the window, not with your back to the window. Um, you know, sit outside on your porch. Just, right. you know, just... Uh, Go for a, a meeting in the middle of the day or the middle of the morning. Go for a meeting around the block, walking around the block or to a park or something. Sure. So, yes, just as bright as, as you can come. You, you don't have to look to a direct bulb to get that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, quite the contrary. You shouldn't do that. All right, right, right. So, so there's, there's very practical ways of doing it. And, um, you know... It, it is definitely brighter than what I'm willing to bet. It has to be brighter than what you normally have at home. Sure, sure. Okay, because people don't have very bright homes nowadays. Right. So, um, do we have a sense for when we talk about alertness and 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 the things that light are affecting? Do we have a sense of this against um, other factors in, in your daily life, like what you're eating, your stress levels, other, you know, I'm always curious about, you know, you'll see some folks out there say that light is the most important thing for your circadian entrainment, and maybe it is, but I often wonder, well, like, what if I have a big meal before bed, or what if I didn't eat enough, or, you know, are there other f systems in there that are, are going to affect how you sleep and how you feel? Yeah, I mean, this is a really good question. Um, and it is true. Scientifically, we know that light is the most Im important. We call it Zeitgeber or time giver for mm. the biological clock. Light will supersede any other time giver. 
Now, what's interesting is that if you're not getting that light, or if there is, for example, in animal studies, if you only put the food in their equivalent to nighttime, right, for the mm -hmm. animal, the animal will reverse its circadian rhythms, and it will almost ignore the light-dark pattern because that's the only time they have to eat. Right. It has to survive, right? Sure. So uh, diet does have, and we, we're learning more and more that it does have an influence mm -hmm. in your biological clock. And the reason is we have the master clock here in the brain where light is the dominant stimulus. But we have a lot of peripheral clocks throughout our body. So you have your, your liver, your pancreas, your stomach, everything has their own little clock that we call it slave oscillators. So they're slave to the master clock in the brain. But if my master clock in the brain is not doing what it's supposed to be doing for you know, survival, those rebellion clocks out there will just go out on their own because sure. you gotta eat, the, right. you know, so it's, it's gonna happen. So having a big meal at the wrong time will impact your circadian clock. Not as strong, but it will have an influence. Sure. The other thing is exercise. There's a little bit of research being done saying that if you really have heavy exercise before you go to bed, you can phase shift the time you have a biological clock. Mm. Um, so those things will have an impact, but it's a much, much sort of smaller scale um, than light. But what okay. you want is have everything synchronized, not just your light-dark pattern, but the time you eat, the time you exercise, have everything regular, and they will reinforce each other. Let me ask this, because um, I think this is something that the lighting industry has repeatedly gotten in, in a little bit of trouble for, not, not so much with circadian stuff, but I think when we give advice that does not align with people's lived experience, they kind of just throw the whole conversation out, right? Um, a good example of this would be, you see a lot of things these days about screens at night and mm -hmm. don't look at a screen at night. And it's a screen and a screen and a screen, not necessarily the nuances of that conversation. And I had somebody say to me the other day, like, listen, you know, I watch TV every night until about 1130 and I fall asleep just fine. I sleep perfectly well and I wake up and I feel fine. Um, because probably their TV is across the room and the actual amount of light that they're getting into their eyes are really negligible, all things considered. Right. That's very different than maybe reading your iPad at full brightness right before you try to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the subtle differences in there? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, there is one main difference there is you got it right. It's, it's how much light you're getting at the eye. You're getting a lot less light at the eye from your TV than you're getting from your screen right close. You know, the inverse square law works. The closer you get, the higher the amount that you're getting, right? So you, you reduce the distance, you double the amount. Um, so, um, it, and the other thing that we have shown here in our studies is that light coming in the central vision, in the middle of your eye, it's more effective than light coming from the periphery. So you think about your screen, it's sitting right in front of you. Right. And the third thing is the duration, okay? If you do it for half an hour and an hour, it's probably not gonna be very effective. 
But if you're doing it for three hours, mm. four hours before you go to bed, so that dose is what's what's probably causing the issue. Right. It's the longer duration with that sort of, not a huge brightness, but it's bright enough to affect your clock. But if you're extending the duration, now you're extending that effect in the biological sure. clock. Now, there's one thing that it's important is that how much light you get during the day will affect how sensitive you're going to be to that light at night. Mm. If, if you are in dim light all day, you're going to be more sensitive to that screen light. Mm. If you have a lot of light during the day, that screen at night may not mean much because what what your your biological clock is looking at is a contrast between light and dark. Yeah, see, these are the kinds of subtleties that I think get lost in the conversation. That's exactly right. right. All these little things, and 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 everyone's own life complexities, right? The, you know, the if you've got small children, your your circadian clock is messed up for all kinds of other reasons. If you've got if you work late or work early, or all of the the, the different things, I think we we tend to imagine a certain kind of person. When we think about these conversations, the person that gets up at six or seven in the morning, who's going to a day job that works from nine to five. Um, But there's lots of people out there with lots of different, um, you know, needs and and lifestyle uh, settings. It's interesting. And that's one of the things that now people are talking a lot about it is, you know, health disparities in that regard. Because if you think about like, and I think I'm learning that now by being in New York City. Mm. compared to being in Albany. I mean, I get sometimes in the subway because I have an early train upstate, so I get in the subway at 6 a.m. And I am telling you, the subway is packed. And if people that came from the Bronx, and so mm-hmm. they have been in that subway for at least 35 minutes, right? So they have long commutes. They're waking up early. They're in a subway. They're not getting their light because they're waking up in the dark they're commuting in the dark they're going to go in somewhere maybe in the dark um it's much different than the people can that can start working at 10 o'clock in the morning and go walk in the middle of manhattan to their jobs getting their light and their coffee in the morning um so there's absolutely a huge variation in lifestyle um and and i think that these things are coming up now. I think with COVID, people started thinking a little bit more about those those disparities that, you know, it's just lifestyle. That, right. The, the, there's an equity thing there. There's, that's exactly you know, right. Um, it, it's about, and we see that this extends beyond lighting, it extends to dietary choices, right? Yeah. Because what you can afford to sleep, eat is going to... amount gonna... of sleep, right? right? You have to curtail your sleep to be able to commute for two hours, right? Right. And, and, and big cities and smaller cities, for example, that is not as much of a problem in Albany because your commute is 15 minutes in Albany. Sure. It's not two hours. So, you know, all these things are, so, so you're absolutely right. You can't make a sweeping statement of good lighting, bad lighting for circadian uh, because a lot of it is contextual. You need to understand the, what you're talking about. There's an enormous amount of... I'm going to call it privilege in this conversation. You'll get people who are thinking about a very specific kind of economic strata when they give this advice and not thinking about stimulus response. Mm-hmm. This is what happens when you do this. Yeah. They're thinking about, they, they want to jump right to the advice and who are they going to give the advice to? People that look and sound like them. 
And yeah. that's really problematic for a conversation like this, I think. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, and, and the other thing that it's important too when it comes to the advice is telling you an advice in something that it's a 24-hour cyclic, cyclic thing. Mm-hmm. You give the advice at one point at the 24 hours and not at the entire 24 hours. Mm. That's why I reinforce the fact that it's light and dark, right? And how much light you get during the day will affect your sensitivity to light at night. So it's not just, um, you know, half an hour of light in the morning. It's, it's, it's your entire light exposure over your waking period. Right. That's right. what matters, and that's what you have to think about. And I think that makes it harder for, say, uh, people that are just doing uh, office lighting or school lighting because you really don't control what's in the residential part, right? Right, of course. But there is something that you need to be careful and just warn people. Said, you know, I can do so much by doing the lighting during the day, but you have to do your part on the lighting in the evening. So on that, that topic... Um... Can I, I, this is a, a conversation that's been coming up for me a little bit. It, it actually bubbled up a little bit during education, actually, as I was looking at all these different products. What do you think about the ethics of controlled circadian entrainment? Meaning that, let's say that, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not endorsing any product. I just let's say a product could instantly affect people's circadian, you know, uh, rhythms or, or entrainment. Should we be doing that in office spaces? Like, I, I often wonder, like, especially, and I thought about this in the context of schools, kids at different ages have different, I'm, from my understanding, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but they have different natural melatonin uh, creation cycles than people who are older, right? The teacher has a different melatonin cycle than the student. Is it ethical for us to try and... um make people awake and alert all day. I, I, I wonder about that. Like if, if we were handing out caffeine pills, people would think that was insane. So why are we doing that with, with light is, is the question I guess I'm asking. Yeah, and I think this, this has been a debate um, in the industry for a long time. Hmm. And I had a conversation with a, one person at Ledgecation and he was a lighting designer and he said, well, you know, it's the liability and so on. And I said, well, have you thought that you're actually doing harm now by not doing it? Right. Right? Because I get into nursing homes with Alzheimer's patients, and I'm telling you, it's doing harm. Okay. The way the lighting is right now. So so I, I could reverse the question and mm. say, is it ethical to continue to do what we're doing knowing that we're we're not helping them sleep. Sure. Right? Sure. And the second thing that you have to think about is all we're saying is bright days, dark nights. It's exactly what you would get if you were a, a sort of a fisherman, for example, that you're outdoors all day. Sure. And you're in darkness at night. So this is all you're trying to do. I don't think you can make any claims of anything. I know I, I don't recommend making claims because I agree with you. It's, you know, I always use the example of chemotherapy. Hmm. If chemotherapy worked for everybody, nobody would die of cancer. And right. yet we have a lot of people dying of cancer, unfortunately. But that doesn't mean we don't offer chemotherapy because there are people being saved by it, right? right. 
So in a way, it's almost like the same thing. It's like you create this bright, dark environment. The majority of people will benefit from that, but some people won't, or some people may have other problems that won't let them sleep well or other health issues and so on. So you can't make the claim that you're going to help everybody, but, but you know that you're giving them a better environment than what they have right now. Okay. Okay. I can. So I think that I think I, what I'm trying to separate out here is what you guys do, which is real science, versus what I think certain, let's call it manufacturers, let's call it people with something to sell, maybe pushing out there. Yeah, the truth is, I, I can't make any claim about tunability. Right. It's tunable better, it's tunable more healthy. I don't know. And honestly, I don't think it would be but I don't have the data and I mm -hmm. wouldn't make those claims. I can say brighter days and dimmer evenings than what we have nowadays, I think this we need to do. Sure. And it's, think of it mimicking or mimicking, you know, not, you're not gonna mimic daylight in the indoor environment, but at least the contrast, sure. the contrast that you normally have when when you're outdoors during the day and indoors at night. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so just changing gears a little bit toward what I, oh, I'm going to call pop science. I don't want to, you know, um, probably because of what I do and the kind of content I make and, and the stuff that I'm interested in, the algorithms serve me a lot of people who have a lot of advice about what um, people should be doing every day. I think the more responsible people out there are doing it correctly. I think they're they're largely latching on to the idea of bright mornings. Um, I think, and as we've talked about, they're missing some of the subtleties. Um, you know, one of the things that I think comes up over and over again, we, we touched on this earlier, is the idea of a bright morning. Um, but I think we've already mentioned you can uh, you can inject this throughout your waking period or your desired waking period and and help yourself sleep um do you think that uh i don't know how much of this you see in in your daily life do you think that what we're largely telling people through social media and through the uh, you know more media streams are is accurate or do you think that it's are there things out there that that bother you when you see them I think that what bothers me is, um, I think from what I see from, from pop science is it's just, there's too much on the um, spectrum change. Right. You know, like the, the color changing stuff, which means nothing if you have low light levels. You can change mm -hmm. whatever you want. It's not gonna have any impact on the circadian system. So I think that there's a lot of on those, you know, apps that change colors. That's that's what you see. Uh, that can't guarantee I'm going to have sure. healthy, you know, healthy circadian rhythms, or it's giving me what I need. Um, but but I think for the most part, they do get the sleep part right. You if you disrupt your sleep, and if you curtail your sleep, you're going to have a lot of health, or you you. It's not that you are going to, but you're more likely to have a lot of health um, issues like diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, even now risk for Alzheimer's disease. So I think the, mm. the part that they 
talk about on sleep deprivation and that we are a sleep deprived society. We're not, and, and the health effects of that, I, I do think that they cover it as, as good. In terms of the lighting, I don't think people get the lighting right, to be quite honest. It's all about the color tuning and the changing my app, and that's just, that's just uh, yeah. you know. I have a long monologue I'll spare you about <laughs> why we, we, I think there's a lot of nice reasons to use tunable white light. I think there's aesthetic effects and, yeah. and other things to do and with it. And people may are... like it. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But, but use it for the right reasons. Don't use it for the wrong reasons. Right, right. It's, let, let, you know, and the lighting industry does this though. And if, if, again, if you're listening to this and you're not really like in it, um, whether we're talking about the greenwashing stuff that happened at the dawn of LED or we're talking about um, when tunable white really hit the market, everybody had a graphic that related this back to circadian health and it really has absolutely nothing to do with that. No. Now, there are aesthetic reasons um, if you would like from my, and maybe Mary, Mariana, you have opinions on this. I have found for myself, I'm in my home office today versus the, the shed, it was too cold out there. <laughs> um, I have found for myself that psychologically, I like the light that's over my head during the day, having a more, a closer to like, you know, 5,000K. But I always, no matter what time of the day it is, if it's in the table lamp that's over here, it feels green and unsettling to me. So on the psychological side, just what's aesthetically pleasing to me, that's what I, I tune this all to. Um, do we know or do we have any good science on if people feel like they're in an aesthetically pleasing environment, if that um, maybe not on the circadian side, but just enhances mood, enhances enjoyment, or is that just common sense? And we, you know, yeah, I, I, you know, I can't say that there's a lot of science on that, but there is a lot of you hear about it, and, and there, there are, I would say, one or two researchers that I actually like in terms of looking at, you know, not necessarily color of light. A lot of it is in color of the environment, right? Mm. Lighting can sort of be part of it. And, and and there is this thing about, you know, the calming colors and, you know, how people feel. But but in terms of, I mean, there's just from Flynn, right? The work that Flynn did and so on. Just, I, I think that people, I think that the lighting, both the distribution as well as the the, the color of and, and the, the light level of the light will change how people feel in the space. Mm. I do think that there is, but is there a lot of science on that? No, not that I'm aware of. It could be okay. that more earlier research that people were doing with that. Recently, people have not been doing as much research yeah. on that. Yeah. But I do think it affects. I really do. I think the lighting has a huge impact on people, not just circadian. I think it has a huge impact on people in general. Oh, I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if I thought otherwise. Yeah, um, you uh, know, absolutely. The, um, we take it for granted, though, which is, you know. You know what's interesting about that is I think the pandemic, you, you mentioned this earlier, I think that really has changed um, some of the ways people and why this conversation is opening up a little more. I had a friend who uh, she sent me a picture. So she worked for a major corporation. And, of course, in 2020, she was sent to work from home like, like so many other people. And they sent out this email, come back to this beautiful new office we built, you know. Now she's been working at home for – you know, uh, nearly two years and um, got an environment she likes. She has a desk set up the way it is by the window she likes to sit by and all that. And then they bring her back into this office and 
it's this gray, you know, fluorescent box. And she's at, her desk is as far from the windows as it possibly can be. I'm sure she was getting 50 to 75 foot candles on the tabletop. It's not that it wasn't lit well, but she hated the environment. Yeah. She absolutely hated being yeah. in it. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. that balance of, you know, what's, what is effective, like she could read the papers on her desk, but hated the environment she was in. Um, that's why you need lighting designers and you need educated lighting designers who yeah. can help you navigate. Yes, you, this is the right amount of light, but here's how we should deliver it. And also, like I said, I mean, for circadian, it doesn't have to be a 6,500K that everybody hates. You right. can do it with a warm light, you know? I mean, it, it will have to be higher amounts of light, but it can be just as pleasant. Right. Um, and we've had applications, like we did a project with uh, myeloma transplant patients in the hospital. We put in a 3,000K. It was, the hospital, the hospital room was beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's an indirect light. It was absolutely beautiful, giving them the circadian lighting they need. So it can be done, and I think the lighting designers have an amazing tool in their hands with LEDs to be able to implement that in, in the, the right way. Yeah, so before we um, finish up here with the second study I wanted to talk about, let, can you talk a little bit about um, the – so we talked about circadian stuff in the in the broad context, but – I know you've you've done some studies, uh, really landmark studies on the work with light and Alzheimer's patients. Um, also work with um, now through Sinai and through other medical institutions, uh, light and cancer patients. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, I don't want to call it the healing effects necessarily, but what are some of the um, positive and negative effects of lighting for patients, people in in controlled medical environments? Yeah. Um... What we're seeing, the strongest effect is obviously better sleep. Um, mm. We're seeing a very strong effect on depression, reducing depressive uh, mm. symptoms, which was stronger than I thought I was going to see it. And it, it, it popped up as one of the strongest uh, impacts that we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing reduction in fatigue, cancer-related fatigue, for example. Um, and we're seeing in Alzheimer's patients reduction in um, agitation. So, and, and I honestly, I think it does stem from from sleeping better. I think right. you know they are sleeping better. They're less agitated. They're eating better. They're socializing more. Right. So all of these were observations that the nurses in the nursing home we're getting saying, you know, the patient is eating better, the patient is socializing better, the patient is less aggressive. Um, so we're seeing all of these benefits, which yeah. it's, it's really rewarding to, to be able to see that. That's amazing. Um, so we have to we'll talk about it offline, but we have to find a, a way to get more of these pieces of information in front of yeah. uh, the people that plan these buildings. Because yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the reasons I started this whole show is I want to try and take the conversations that happen between lighting people at a very technical level and make them accessible to folks that are not within our industry. Um, because we need to get that value of light out there oh. before there's a project. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's got to become as important. Like I was in a hospital recently visiting someone and um, I noticed that the lighting fixtures were like two by fours from 1985 but every room had two iPads in it because somebody 
Somebody convinced, or, or I shouldn't even say convinced, everyone understands the value of an iPad, right? Yeah. There's there's a lot of great things an iPad can do, especially for a patient who's stuck in yeah. bed. I totally get it. Yeah. But no one understands the value of the light in the room. And yeah. so the light stays this crappy old thing that's not pleasant for anybody. But the, the it's technology, the, it's not the money. The money's there. It just gets spent on the wrong thing. That's right. Sometimes. It's always the last thing they think about it. And then, oh, yeah, well, we don't need to do that. How do we know it's better? And Right. Yes, we get this all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think what I want to just touch on for people is some of the ways that the folks in the media may um, mischaracterize a study and create a little bit of a panic. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Because so this is the um, the study was done by Dr. Phyllis Z uh, out of Northwestern University, and um, if you know the study, then I'll let you describe it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know all the details, to, to do, and you can add, uh, but I know that they, they were looking basically at metabolic changes. They looked at glucose tolerance tests and cortisol uh, with people sleeping. Um, I don't remember how much it was, 100 lux? That's, yeah, that's the real detail that I think people don't quite latch onto here. It's a hundred yeah. lux. Yeah, hundred lux, is, it, it's not a little bit of light. It's a considerable amount of light in the space. I mean, give give you an idea, a night light, which you can navigate really well in the space will, with a, one lux at the eye. Right. right. It's, it's very bright in the room. So a hundred lux is really, you know, that, that could have an application like we talked about in say hospital rooms. Because mm -hmm. if they leave lights on in the hospital at night, that's what's happening to you, for sure. example, right? So it could have an implication for that. So, and I think that's that's the detail that I really want to latch on to here. Because the other thing that I noted reading this was that the light source, because it says here in the article that the light source was placed directly overhead. And that's another big detail that I think people don't necessarily latch on to if you're just reading this is 100 lux is roughly 10 foot candles, which for folks that aren't lighting people, imagine you dimmed your light down, your, your, your bedside lamp down because you were reading at night and then you fell asleep and forgot to leave it and forgot to turn it off. It's a significant amount of light that's hitting you directly in the face <laughs> if it's overhead. So of course it was gonna disturb people's sleep, but I think in the context of an article like this from a respected source, people, you know, get this worry, well, I can't leave a nightlight on, or, you know, what happens about the light outside my, my room? Or... And, and I think this is, this is mainly, I mean, I don't doubt the data, you know, the data are the data, and um, there's definitely an impact, and I can tell you, I mean, they, they seem like they have used a, a warm light source. Uh, it makes sense because when you close your eyes, you have a lot more transmittance on the longer wavelengths, so more hmm. of the reds, you transmit more. So it makes perfect sense that you're actually transmitting more light if you have a warm, warm color uh, light source. And, um, but I, I think I completely agree with you. I think in, in all of these studies, what's really missing is a context of, of what bright and dark is and mm -hmm. what do you normally find in the built environment? How does that compare to what you find in the built environment? I can tell you that uh, I just did some measurements in um, dialysis rooms because I'm writing a proposal for chronic uh, kidney disease patients. And the dialysis room in the hospital 
does get to about 100, 120 lux at the eye. Mm. Okay, so, you know, it's, it's, first of all, it's not bright enough, but it's enough to have people coming in and have dialysis in the room. So it's not something you would probably be sleeping with right. on. Right. The kind of light right. that you would be sleeping with on. Um, so I completely agree with you that I think the context of the lighting part just doesn't get discussed at all in these, in these articles and so on, which right. should be. Well, Mariana, this was really fantastic. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank um, you. Can you, before we wrap up, can you tell me a little bit about um, what are some of the studies you guys are working on now? What 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 can we be expecting over the next say year or two, and where we can find you guys? We want, I want to make sure we get all those uh, those links in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so we're doing. A, we continue to do a lot of the work with Alzheimer's patients. Mm. We actually extend it now to mild cognitive impairment patients because we want to delay the transition to Alzheimer's disease. We're starting to look at fMRIs, looking at changes in the brain that occur before and after the light treatment. Uh, we're collecting a lot of cognition uh, tests now, looking at the impact on cognition. We're working with Parkinson's disease. We're working with uh, myeloma transplant patients. Um, we are about to start a project with shift workers. Um, so we're, you know, pretty much on a sort of, we're, we're now doing a project with uh, horizontal vertical lights and falls mm -hmm. in, in assisted living facilities. Um, so we, we're expanding all the clinical part. And then we continue to do the work with the UV and disinfection, the plants, UV for plants. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing work on the continue to work on the transportation and safety. Um, so we're sort of, you know, continue to do the technical stuff and increasing on the clinical side. That's fantastic. Um, I'm sure I'm going to ask you back because we'll have more stuff to talk about. We can go deeper into specific topics. Sure. Um, but for everybody listening, everybody watching, there'll be links to the LHRC in the show notes both to the website and to their LinkedIn and other social channels so you can sort of keep up with what they're doing. Um, I guess I would finish with go to real sources for this stuff. There are lots of really popular accounts out there, and I get it, and I, it's snack-sized content. But if you're ever curious or if something gets you thinking, hey, you know, <laughs> uh, what if I can't get my morning light? What else can I do to, to stay awake? Um, or, or how else can this affect me? There are deeper sources out there. There are other, you know, real scientific sources and, you know, feel free to reach out and find more about these things because that's, what's important, especially when it comes to how light affects this. It's very subtle. There's a lot of, a lot of intricacies there. Thank you again for listening and watching this, uh, this episode. Um, Mariana is just one of the experts in the field. It doesn't get much better. And um, her history as a speaker and as an educator, as well as a researcher, is just unimpeachable. So I'm so, so grateful that she decided to come on the show with me. Um, for more from Delivered Lumens and from the LHRC, head into the show notes, both on YouTube and uh, on the audio feed. You'll have links to everything we talked about there. You can always find more on Instagram at Delivered Lumens. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can go to deliveredlumens.lighting if you want to learn more there. And um, I will see you on the next episode 